Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the Venezuelan Tragedy Edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I speak with economist Ricardo Hausman about the macroeconomic and humanitarian catastrophe in Venezuela. Hausman is Venezuelan himself and was once the Venezuelan government's planning minister in 1992 and 1993. He is now the director of the Center for International Development at Harvard, where he also leads the center's growth lab. In that capacity, he's overseen quite a bit of research on Venezuela, and we'll link to those papers at ft.com forward slash alpha chat so you can read them yourself, along with a staggering article by Hausman and Project Syndicate that outlines the extent of the collapse in his home country. But in this conversation, we start by discussing Venezuelan history, the decades before Hugo Chavez came to power in 1998, and then the conditions in place that made it possible for Chavez to be elected. We discussed Chavez's early political maneuvering, and we discussed the policies he enacted from the late 1990s through his death in 2013, which contributed to the current meltdown. And of course, we cover the events since then through to the present day, asking some hard questions about Venezuela's future, and we finish with a discussion of what might happen to Venezuela's debt. Here it is. First of all, Ricardo, thanks for being on Alpha Chat. Thank you for having me. So, Ricardo, uh, we are going to talk about the scale of the current meltdown in Venezuela, uh, and we're going to talk about all the policies uh, that are responsible for it. But before anything, I actually want to give some sense of the wider context of Venezuelan history. And I actually want to start all the way back in the late 1950s, when after a brief period of dictatorship, Venezuela reestablished a democracy and through the 1970s, when we had the big oil boom and bust Uh, in that mid-century period, can you just give us a sense of what the Venezuelan economy looked like? the extent to which it was already dependent on the petrostate, and whatever distortions were already forming uh, because of the reliance on oil. So um, oil became Venezuela's largest export in 1925, and Venezuela became the largest exporter in the world in 1929, and it remained so until about 1965. In that period, say between 1925 and 1975, call it that uh, 50-year period, Venezuela was the fastest growing country in the world. And it it went from being, you know, a very poor Latin American country with an income similar to that of, say, Central American countries at that time to being the richest Latin American country. And that reflected itself in the fact that it attracted massive immigration. It attracted some 700,000 Spaniards, Italians, and Portuguese in a country that at the time had something like 7 million people. It attracted probably something like a million Colombians and so on. So it was it was a magnet. It, it was a wealthy, prosperous. It used massively its resources to to invest in infrastructure. When democracy came along, it prioritized education, health, uh, public housing, and it, it was a fairly prosperous place. University education was free, not only primary and secondary, but university education was free. Uh, there was um, almost you know, very cheap access to electricity, water, uh, and so on. So it was a fairly prosperous place. When in 1973-74, uh, the price of oil went up, then the country start, had these grandiose uh, uh, plans, uh, very much uh, state-centric at the time, uh, state-owned enterprises in steel, aluminum, uh, shipbuilding, uh, and all sorts of other things that ended up in, in very bad failures. And the 1980s was a very, very difficult period in Venezuela. 
And it was a period where the country responded with the idea that the decline in the price of oil was this short-term phenomenon, that you just had to hunker down, uh, put some controls here and there, and wait for good times to return. Uh, but good times never really returned until actually a quarter of a century later. And so by 1989, uh, the country realized that it was in a, in a place it could not uh, go uh, further in and try to do uh, restructuring, open up the economy, eliminate these controls, and see if they could get some some new dynamism going. That became politically very controversial. That led to the military coup attempts that Chavez organized in 1992, and that led to an anti-reformist uh, president being elected in 1993, only to change course and continue uh, reforming after 1996. And 1997, 98 were supposed to be the years in which all this reform effort were going to pay off. Uh, they opened up the oil industry and, and oil production started to go up for the first time in a long time by a lot. So things started to look as if they were going to pay off. But in January 1998, the price of oil collapsed. By August 98, uh, Russia defaulted. That generated massive financial contagion. In the, in the rest of the emerging markets, it hit Venezuela very strongly, both because of the decline in the price of oil and because of this financial contagion that shut off access to international finance. And in December of that year, we had elections and we elected Hugo Chavez. Yeah, Ricardo, as you said, at the end of the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, there were some attempts at reforms, uh, partly to reduce the state's reliance on oil, but some other changes too, uh, including the acceptance of an IMF proposal. Uh, this all started with the election of Carlos Andres Perez in 1988. Uh, why did those reforms not work, uh, or why were they so unpopular? Well, I think the he, he had to switch to reform for the very simple reason that he inherited a situation in which uh, the fiscal deficit was huge, was 10% of GDP. The country had no access to international finance. International reserves de facto were negative. Uh, so the only way he could face that situation was to ask for international financial assistance, restructure the debt, and open up the economy. So his degrees of freedom were very limited because essentially as of... Um, January 1986, the price of oil had collapsed and the previous government had essentially not adjusted and used its international reserves until until they had dwindled completely. So uh, I think that uh, there was no space, you know, in his first administration, the price of oil quadrupled. In his second administration, he didn't have much to distribute. So I don't think it was as much an ideological change or a political change as a contextual change. Yeah, you mentioned his first administration. To be clear, that was in the 1970s. Um, his second administration was the one that we're discussing now. He was followed by uh, Rafael Caldera, who, as you said, uh, was also uh, an anti-reformist. Can you talk a little bit about the conditions in place in Venezuela when Chavez was elected uh, that made his own populist message appealing? Well, um, you know, one of the characteristics of the previous system was that there was significant political competition. And, you know, an incumbent government, an incumbent political party, had a less than even chance of being re-elected. So there was a lot of political competition. But the situation had been you know, very tough throughout the 80s and 90s. And so uh, Chavez came in with, um, with a fairly you know, attractive discourse of saying, yes, there's a lot of political competition between people who are essentially the same thing. I'm something very different. The reason why you're worse off is because they stole the money. I'm going to come in and I'm going to restore the money to you and not to them. And that was his original discourse, and that's how he came to power initially. He said that he was not a socialist, that he was just a a reformist that was going to get the corrupt politicians out, say, like Mani Puliti in, in Italy or, or the Lava Jato in Brazil. It was going to be a change of regime where, where the old political parties were no longer going to be there. And this was a new kind of more militaristic political leadership. Right. More mil militaristic political leadership. It turned out to be very much a cult of personality. 
And before we start talking about uh, his policy agenda in the late 90s, I guess, in the 2000s and through to his death in 2013, I kind of want to talk for a minute about the rhetoric he used and the kinds of populist tactics that he used to stay in power. Uh, we had a conversation about this with Sebastian Edwards in the context of macroeconomic populism earlier this year. Uh, and I want to sort of ask you to kind of apply some of that conversation or some of that, some of those ideas to Chavez himself. What do you think it was about the rhetoric he used and about his own political abilities that allowed him to stay in power despite doing the things that I think by Western rationalist standards, people tend to find quite uh, repelling. Well, you know, in the first the first couple of years, he was focused on changing the constitution in order to create a much more powerful presidency with a much longer period and uh, with the possibility of re-election with a single chamber in, in the legislative branch instead of two so as to make it more pliant and with the ability to scrap all the judicial system and start from scratch. So he concentrated his first couple of years in consolidating political power. He did not change the economics much. He left the same finance minister that Caldera had, eh, Maritza Isaguirre, and, eh, and there was no discernible change in policies. Then in the year 2000, with the new constitution, he got reelected. And there he started to, to move a little bit more on the, on the economic front. And in one day, you know, he asked the, the more pliant now National Assembly to grant him the power to pass laws through presidential decree. And on one day, he passed 48 laws uh, through a decree. No one had read the laws. Nobody had discussed the laws. That led to a massive protest movement. And that massive protest movement uh, ended up uh, unseating him for something like 48 hours. And then his popularity had actually collapsed. And, and things were not looking well for him. Uh, then he, he started sort of like blaming the oil company for, for things. So he ended up trying to mess with the administrative autonomy of the oil company. The oil company went on strike and he ended up firing 20,000 of the 35,000 employees of the oil company and, and took over control of that. So at that time, he was deeply unpopular. There were massive political, there was a massive political movement against him. And at that time, uh, the price of oil started to increase. So his real populist policies started at around 2003, 2004, not in 1999 when he got into power. And there he started to use uh, oil money to massively expand a uh, social programs. The social programs were mostly designed by Cuba, in Cuba, with significant Cuban advice. And, and he started to spend a lot of the increasing oil money in that. In the time of the strike and stuff that happened around 2003, he imposed exchange controls and he imposed price controls. They were imposed initially in the context of a crisis because the oil company had shut down and so on. But then when the price of oil after 2004 started to go up and the country had sort of like plenty of foreign exchange reserves, you know, they could have taken out all these controls. They were no longer needed. But uh, the vice president at the time, Aristobulo Isturiz, uh, said that they wouldn't eliminate those controls because if they did, they would be unseated from power. So they used exchange controls, price controls, import controls as a way of keeping control on the private sector, as a way of making the private sector pliant and dependent on bureaucratic decisions of the state. And there, there I think Sebastian Edwards' model of saying, okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to span, expand spending this is not going to generate inflation because we're going to have price controls and this is not going to generate a balance of payments crisis because we have import controls. But that uh, mixed with the fact that they could borrow internationally and they borrowed internationally in massive amounts, in, in incredibly massive amounts. So they went out on a borrowing binge 
And capital markets were super happy to lend to Venezuela because they thought Venezuela has this immense amount of oil, supposedly the largest oil reserves in the world, and the price of oil is going up. So the value of that collateral that the country has to pay back has gone up. So the country borrowed massively in the period of the oil boom. In 2004, the public external debt was something like $25 billion. Our best estimate is that today is something like $178 billion. So it multiplied by a factor of seven in the period of the oil boom. Yeah. And to be clear, by the way, uh, when I was referring to um, populism earlier, I wasn't just talking about uh, economic populism or anti-elitism. Um, I was also talking about the kind of anti-pluralist exclusionary populism that has been sort of common in 20th century uh, Latin America. So when you describe, for instance, his altering the institutions very early on before he started altering policies, uh, that to me strikes me as a very uh, populist approach. When you start talking about him firing 20,000 of the 35,000 people who worked for the National Oil Company, that's interesting as well because of a paper that was just produced by your own growth lab, which talks about the huge missed opportunity uh, since the early Chavez years in investing in the oil sector in declining output and in overborrowing against oil revenues. Uh, it sounds like that represented a significant human capital loss, uh, management talent loss uh, very early on and one that still kind of has consequences even today. Well, I mean, spectacularly so. Uh, let me just give you uh, sort of like a sense of the magnitude of the mismanagement uh, of the oil industry. In 1998, the year before Chavez got elected, or the year in which, in December of that year, Chavez got elected and he took power in February 1999, in 1998, Venezuela produced 3.7 million barrels of oil. Uh, today, it's producing about two. If Venezuela had maintained its market share in the world oil industry, that it could have because it had infinite reserves, it had the largest reserves in the world, it would be producing 2 million barrels more than it is currently producing with the same market share, right? So uh, the collapse is immense relative to history and it's immense relative to this opportunity cost of where it should have gone had it just kept you know, its market share the way it was. That collapse of the oil industry happened in two steps. First, all the know-how of that industry, centuries of um, of man years of experience, was lost in in the firing of these of these people. They were not only fired but persecuted. So most of them left the country. Many of them left the country, and they caused, for example, an oil boom in Colombia. Colombia went from producing 200,000 barrels of oil to a million barrels of oil, thanks to the fact that Venezuelans knew how to extract much more oil from the fields that Colombia was already uh, exploiting. So, so there was a massive loss of human capital. They, they also wanted to create a, a politically conscious oil company. So they started to put an enormous amount of social programs and other, other things uh, on the books of um, PDVSA, the oil company. And as a consequence, eh, they starved the company from investment and they eh, run the, the company in an amazingly corrupt way. And this is really not just talk about corruption, but, you know, evidence of corruption in massive ways. There were these foreign oil companies. These, these foreign oil companies have been complaining to the government that they want to wrest control of the procurement of oil projects because they know that these, this procurement is being done at multiples of what things uh, should cost. Uh, you know, there's people that have been found in the U.S. owning hundreds of millions of dollars of money that has been laundered out of PDVSA and so on. So, so they really uh, destroyed sort of like the hand that laid the golden eggs at the time when their own plans and their own announced plans was to move Venezuela to produce 6 million barrels of oil. And instead of increased production, they have never been able to stop a, a very rapid decline in production. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier the price controls, the FX controls, policies whose results were papered over for a little while in the 2000s because the oil price kept climbing. 
Can you talk about some of the other policy uh, changes that Chavez made, and in particular around uh, the private sector, uh, the increasing socialization of the private sector, uh, nationalizations, uh, things of that nature that ended up making it very hard to do business in Venezuela? So, well, exchange controls and price controls were put in 2004. Chavez won re-election in 2006. And in early 2007, he sort of announced that he was now going to move towards socialism. And he started with a spree of nationalizations. In those days, the price of oil was very high. So he could afford to just buy everything that a that moved or that he fancied. So, for example, he nationalized the telephone company that was owned by Verizon. He nationalized uh, the three cement companies that were owned by the Mexicans, uh, uh, Cemex, by Holcim and Lafarge. Uh, he nationalized the, one of the largest banks, which was owned at the time by Banco Santander. He nationalized uh, the supermarket chain. Uh, the, um, he nationalized 3.7 million hectares of land. So he went on an expropriation spree. At the beginning, when he had money, he would pay for things. And then if these were things owned by people he didn't like, he would just expropriate and not pay for them. So he he changed the contracts of the oil companies um, in a way that essentially extracted part of the expected cash flows out of them. And many of them went, uh, you know, accepted, but a few of them, Exxon, ConocoPhillips, and so on, uh, sued. And these suits are now being adjudicated by the International Court for the Settlement of Investment Disputes. And, and these investments disputes uh, in Washington now add up to $16 billion of claims of expropriations that he didn't uh, pay for. And these are only foreigners. He expropriated the service companies that provided services to the oil company because they started to protest that they were not being paid. So Instead of paying, he just expropriated them. So he took over significant chunks of the Venezuelan economy. And uh, the typical thing is that the moment they took over a company, they ran it to the ground. Uh, production collapsed. They nationalized the steel company. The steel company at the time of nationalization was producing 4.5 million tons of steel with uh, 5,000 workers. It now has 22,000 workers, but it's producing something like 200,000 tons of steel. So they ran those companies to the ground. Aluminum is almost not done anymore when the Venezuela is producing about a million tons of aluminum back when. So essentially, they expropriated the economy and collapsed it on the public sector. And in the private sector, they created all these constraints and this enormous uncertainty over property rights because... Everybody else was being expropriated, and you never knew when it would be your turn. Owens, Illinois was a company building, making bottles. They were expropriated. Why bottles? Another company making detergents was expropriated. Why detergents? So everybody else would not know when would his turn come up. Yeah, Ricardo, as you look back now on all of these policies, uh, which from the standpoint of economic fundamentals are sort of obviously problematic... How do you explain Chavez's ability to do all of this while maintaining uh, his popularity and his grip on power? Do you think that it was primarily because he was able to borrow against these oil revenues and spend a lot of money on social programs, which a lot of people, uh, unsustainably, but a lot of people experienced as rising living standards for a time? Or do you think it was more personality driven? Uh, or if you think it was some mix of both, uh, what would you put more of the weight on? Well, I mean, definitely Chavez was a, a very particular personality, but it is true that for the election of October 2012, you know, in op opinion polls, when qu the question was, is the country going in a good direction or in a bad direction, 60% plus of people thought it was going in a good direction. Uh, what they didn't know is that that year the government was running, you know, the price of oil was at 104 and 
uh, the government ran a fiscal deficit of 18% of GDP. Now, this, this might sound numbers, you know, 18% of GDP for a fiscal deficit is humongous. It's, 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 you know, in the worst year of the Greek crisis, it, it never reached that level. But in the middle of an oil boom, when you're supposed to put money aside, 18% is just beyond belief. If you work out, if you back out, what would have been the price of oil that would have generated fiscal balance in that year? It was a price of oil of almost 200 bolivars to the dollar. So in essence, in 2012, he was spending as if the price of oil was at 200. And all the inefficiencies in production and so on could be papered over because oil was generating so much, so much money by just redistributing it, you could get people happy. Okay, and now let's uh, go from there, from 2012 to the present day under Nicolás Maduro. Um, how have things either changed or not changed? And then give us a scale of uh, the collapse in Venezuela uh, in the present day. You wrote an article about this for Project Syndicate, which is honestly quite staggering to read, as I said earlier. So yeah, can you kind of take us from... 2012 and through to the middle of 2017 where we are now well you know you maybe maybe chavez was knew more than others uh, he knew exactly when to die because uh, he disappeared from the scene in in december uh, 2012 it was reported dead in in march 2013 but was not seen after after december 8 or so 2012 and then Capital markets said, you know, you guys have been borrowing so much money that capital markets shut down for Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela, starting in 2007, had even borrowed massively from the Chinese. They borrowed $56 billion uh, for the Chinese, but just, just for, to get an order of magnitude, this year's imports of Venezuela is going to be $16 billion. So this is almost like three and a half years of imports of Venezuela today were borrowed from the Chinese back when. And by 2013, people thought these guys have borrowed too much. We're not lending to them anymore. And throughout 2013, the price of oil remained at about 100. So the prices of oil were super high, but the country could not no longer borrow in the same way. As a consequence, the country went into a recession the exchange rate went through the roof. Uh, the black market rate depreciated by several hundred percent. And then in the summer of 2014, the price of oil collapsed. So in this period, as they were losing access to finance and then to oil revenues, they simply stopped paying. And they stopped paying for imports. And they were running these arrears and the importing companies were saying, well, you know, maybe they'll pay me a little bit later and a little bit later and a little bit later. Eventually, they realized that they weren't going to be paid. So many, many companies started to leave uh, the country. Some of them left uh, physically in the sense that these were airline companies that were owed something like $4 billion, and they just stopped flying to Venezuela. And now there's really a very, very small number of airlines flying to Venezuela. There's actually like, I don't know, five times, seven times more airline companies flying into Cuba than they are flying into Venezuela, uh, just to give you the degree of disconnection. That collapse in imports, the government decided, since they could not borrow, they decided on two things. The first one is that they were going to remain current on their debts to Wall Street. And that was a fundamental decision. They were going to be remain current on that debt, even though they could not roll it over by borrowing because capital markets had closed for them. So then they said, okay, this is our oil revenue. We have to pay this debt. Every other debt we're going to default on. And the rest we're going to use for imports. And as a consequence of that calculation, imports declined by essentially 80%. And in the private sector, they declined by 90%. That collapse in imports meant that you had no raw materials, you had no intermediate inputs, you had no spare parts, you had no additional capital goods, and then production collapsed. And production started to go down enormously. So official numbers would suggest that GDP in per capita terms since 2013 has fallen 37%. If you add to that the impact of the decline in the price of oil to income, national income has declined by over 
But if you exclude from that, you know, the GDP of generated by the government itself, which is just estimated by the number of, of employees the government has, or if you disregard other parts of the economy that are grossly mismeasured, just look at goods like, you know, agriculture, manufacturing, mining, even construction, and so on, that part of the economy declined by in excess of 55%. So there's been this massive collapse in output, massive collapse in, in incomes. If you look at, at the minimum wage, which in Venezuela, given this incredibly fast inflation and so on, has become the median wage. The median wage, if you estimate it at the black market rate, is something like $20 a month. Uh, but you might say, well, but you know, what is this black market rate? What does that mean? So we have been measuring the minimum wage in calories. We look at the market prices of things and we calculate what is the cheapest calorie a family could buy. And if you do that calculation in 2012, a family could buy 55,000 calories a day with the minimum wage. And now a family can buy 7,000 calories. So if you think that a minimum wage, a median wage has to sustain a family of five, well, five people could not eat enough calories if they spent 100% of their income in the cheapest calorie and no income in housing, uh, uh, footwear, uh, uh, transportation, or anything else. So as a consequence, incomes per capita have collapsed to a degree that it is hard to transmit and understand. And that collapse in private incomes is accompanied by a collapse in Public services like healthcare, for example, there are just, uh, you know, beyond belief. There pe people have been writing pieces that I'm sure are going to win a Pulitzer Prize because they're, they're just astonishing how life expectancy rates, how uh, the prevalence of diseases that had been eradicated. Venezuela was the first country to eradicate malaria back in 1961, even before the U.S. did. And malaria is back big time. Uh, measles is back big time. There are no drugs for HIV. Uh, there are no drugs for hypertension. There are no uh, no uh, machines to do dialysis. There are no cancer drugs. So so there's been a, a an incredible collapse in health standards. And as you know, uh, Caracas is is the highest murder city of the world. It, it beats Central American countries, which come second and third as the most violent uh, city in the world. So, so that is, is what's happened to, so like the collapse in living standards. It has a financial implication, which I may mention. Uh, the acceleration of inflation has been so fast that people have been trying to get rid of money. And, you know, money becomes a hot potato that nobody wants to hold. So what economists call the velocity of money starts going up. And there's, in some sense, less and less money in the economy. So the total assets of the financial system, what you know, people refer to as M2, went from something like $55 billion measured at the black market rate in 2012. All of that financial system, which was $55 billion, is now worth something like $3 billion. All the equity of the banking system is worth less than $200 million. So the banking system has just so like stopped existing. They have more or less the same number of branches. They have more or less the same number of ATMs. But the amount of assets, the value of the assets that they have under management has declined by something like 80%. Yeah, I, I find entirely convincing your argument that the official numbers are dramatically underestimating the destruction and also that... There are very few events that we have to compare it to in the West. The one that it calls to mind for me, because it's the one I've studied, is the special period in Cuba um, in the early 1990s after the end of Soviet subsidies, essentially revealed that Cuba had no economy. And that relates to my next question, which comes from a reader. Um, I solicited some questions on Twitter. This is from uh, Gerardo Rodriguez, and he asks... What about the current status of factor markets after so much economic destruction? How much irreversible economic damage has been done? Well, I mean, the damage has been enormous. The first and important damage has been this massive outflow of talent. Second important damage is the disappearance and 
the departure of very, very important uh, business organizations that, uh, you know, in the end, you know, macroeconomic policies, if they're okay, are responded to by firms that exploit opportunities that the market generates. And if these firms are not there, if these organizations are not there to organize production and ex exploit opportunities, that, that uh, means that the economy will respond less vigorously to any improvement in, in policy. So I think, I think that the damage has been tremendous and, and we don't know the full magnitude of it. I'm sure that there are plenty of skeletons in the closet that we will only find out uh, after there is uh, a change in, in regime. But, you know, I am an advisor to the government of Albania, and uh, I like my relationship in Albania because Albania had for 45 years Ember Hoxha in power as, as, you know, as the North Korea of, of, of Europe. Uh, they spent uh, f 45 years under communism, and, and when communism collapsed, uh, the economy collapsed even further, a third of the population left and so on. But it's been 20 years of, of recovery, so now I, you know, it's, it, I like Albania. It's a pleasant place, and to me, when I think of Albania, I, I think that it's a hopeful message for Venezuelans. It says, look, you can have a horrible period, but you know, societies can recover, that they can put themselves uh, together, and it's a belief that I, I like to have because it makes life much more livable. Yeah, Ricardo, I, I haven't asked you much about how this is all uh, very personal for you, uh, not just because you're Venezuelan, um, but because your criticisms uh, of the government have made you persona non grata uh, in your own home country. And I'm wondering if you can just give us a sort of a sense of what that experience has been like for you to have this kind of antagonistic relationship uh, with the government. Well, I mean, the the first uh, the first uh, sort of like personal impact is that, you know, many of my loved ones uh, lived in Venezuela. Uh, and uh, over the course of these years, people have left. And now, you know, there's fewer of my friends and family are there. They're all around the world. There's this you know, new Venezuelan diaspora. And people have, you know, struggled to remake their lives in, in different locations. Uh, uh, all of my, my siblings have uh, left uh, and their children have left. And, and, and for the ones that have stayed, you know, life has been very tough and difficult, and men, you know, they cannot have dreams, they cannot have hopes. You know, I, I teach at a university, I'm constantly in contact with students that when they graduate, they have these great ambitions in life. Kids of that age cannot have these great ambitions in life if they stay at home. So, so, so that is first, you know, the, just the disrupted lives is, 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 is the first source of pain. Uh, then, obviously, uh, you know, um, uh, the government has has attacked me for uh, for writing op-eds, uh, or and they accuse me of these, you know, fancy uh, conspiracy theories of of uh, of all kinds. But you know, the truth is, uh, you know, they haven't been able to grab me, but they have been able, you know, to put my brother-in-law in jail for being a journalist. So that that itself was also a very traumatic experience for the whole family. So I would say, you know, this uh, repression, this oppression, this destruction of dreams has, you know, been a, a, a very disrupting element of my life these last few years. I'm sorry to hear about your brother-in-law. I didn't know that. Is, is he still in jail or is he out now? No, he's in under house arrest. Oh, wow. After spending seven months in a very, very, in very, very inhumane conditions. Wow. Um, again, very sorry to hear that. We have uh, just a few minutes left, uh, and I want to close by asking about uh, your writing on uh, Venezuelan debt and what should be done there. Uh, we had an earlier podcast discussing uh, options for restructuring the debt. It was hosted by Robin Wigglesworth with Lee Buckheit, and we'll put a link to that up on the page uh, with Mitu Gulati also. Uh, any potential restructuring now is further complicated by the U.S. sanctions enacted uh, since that initial interview was taped. Uh, the sanctions which have made it very hard, maybe impossible, for U.S. investors to enter into any new exchange of bonds uh, that would happen as part of a restructuring. But I want to ask about uh, your own writings about this. Um, you've uh, referred to Venezuelan debt as 
hunger bonds, and you've said that essentially investors who buy anew into Venezuelan debt are essentially betting that the government will keep paying them instead of using their funding to provide for its own people. Can you kind of take us through the argument, uh, and then I'll ask one or two follow-up questions? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, you know, usually you think that the capital markets are there to provide capital for good ideas that are going to generate value and pay back the loans and and create other benefits for the borrower so so you think of you know capital markets as as being angels for good in the world but when capital markets have to deal with a government that is willing to compromise future cash flows for any cash up front and it it's not using the resources to create any any good things for the future, then you're giving um, uh, money to an authoritarian regime to mismanage in the short run, and you are condemning the future of the country uh, with obligations that they will not be able to afford to pay. So that's why I call them hunger bonds. A very clear example that prompted this was a, a Goldman Sachs lending the government $850 million at an interest rate of 50%. No one has a project that pays 50%. So the government has $850 million now. Then they have to pay an amount going forward that they, don't, they will not have the resources to pay it with because they're not using the money in any investment program that will be able to pay for that debt. That debt is just to prop up the current regime. And in my mind, that makes that debt odious. It's a debt of the regime. It's not a debt that... Uh, should bind uh, the people of a country because the regime does not represent the, the people and the regime cannot commit the future of the country, the, the people's future. Yeah. Ricardo, you've also written that J.P. Morgan should remove Venezuela from its emerging market bond index because one of the ways in which investors buy Venezuelan debt is through bond funds that track these indexes. It really is... a a strange quirk of the modern world that index providers can be so powerful. But the, the truth is that they typically make decisions about which countries are allowed in their indexes based on strictly financial metrics. And I can see an argument that it might be just as worrying for them to start making decisions like this, as you're advocating, based on their own subjective interpretation of which regimes they themselves find politically repugnant. Uh, and even if in this particular case, in the case of Venezuela, that interpretation is entirely justified, that the government is repugnant, it still seems troubling. And I'm just wondering if you can take us through your argument again uh, and maybe address that concern I just raised. Well, I think that uh, you're touching on a very important point, but uh, you should be very dissatisfied with the present because right now, uh, JP Morgan does two things. It calculates an index, and then it offers vehicles for you to buy the index. And it, by putting stuff on the index, anybody that tracks the index or any financial manager that is, his bonus is going to be dependent on how he performs relative to the index will have to somehow have the assets that are in the index. So in some sense, it, JP Morgan both defines the index and offers the index to the public. Uh, and as a consequence, because they define the index and they offer ETFs on the index, then they buy Venezuelan bonds in the same way. So, so what you would suggest is that maybe what we need is some independent assessor of the odiousness of the debt. So I have suggested the creation of odiousness ratings uh, with my colleague uh, Ugo Panitza from um, the Graduate Institute in Geneva. We've put out this idea that, you know, we should have some independent entity generate these odiousness ratings, which should capture the likelihood that a future judge will perceive that uh, the, the obligations incurred by a previous government should bind the nation or not, that if this debt is odious or not odious. We have the experience of Iraq where after Saddam Hussein and with U.S. pressure, the odiousness argument was used to say, no, this debt was the debt of Saddam Hussein. It should not bind on current Iraqis because they had no say in the process of deciding whether, whether to borrow that money or in the use of that money. So I think that, if anything, this is going to make access to financial markets 
more uh, um, contingent on uh, on governments uh, um, obtaining the consent of their people in the process of borrowing. And interestingly enough, you know, the, the Venezuelan government is trying to borrow without asking permission from the National Assembly. Uh, and uh, Me Too, uh, which you interviewed or you, you quoted recently, has made precisely that argument that uh, debts issued by the government without the consent of the National Assembly don't have the consent of the people and future judges in the U.S. are not going to enforce it or people should fear that they're not going to be enforced because that debt was issued without the consent of the people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and Me Too has written for us uh, on Alphaville, actually, that bondholders will have pretty strong arguments to challenge any forced debt exchange that gets rammed through by the Maduro government. Uh, in agreement with the new constituent assembly, essentially because new governments are bound by the agreements of their predecessors and for other reasons. Uh, again, we'll put up a link to that on Alphaville. But we have to start wrapping up, Ricardo, and it seems at this point that there is a very high probability that at some point Venezuela will have to enter into some kind of restructuring. Uh, perhaps that time has even been hastened by U.S. sanctions, as I mentioned earlier. So this will be my last question, uh, but by way of background, the Venezuelan government itself issues debt and the national oil company also issues separate debt, but in practice, the two are very closely intertwined because the oil company provides the sovereign with its primary source of uh, FX revenues and combined the two owe, I think, somewhere between 50 and $60 billion. But Venezuela has also received financing from China and Russia, financing that has been lent against pledged oil assets, including like Citgo, the subsidiary of the National Oil Company based in Texas. And the numbers are big. I think $20 billion borrowed from China, maybe more, and maybe just slightly less than that from Russia and from the Russian oil company Rosneft. All in all, the numbers aren't entirely clear just how much Venezuelan public debt there is. Uh, and we don't have time to get into too many of the details. But since I did get questions about this from listeners as well, uh, especially from one on Twitter from at uh, Global Macro, I just want to ask in closing, what would be in your estimation a good outcome in terms of a restructuring or a default uh, or any other result? Well, I think... Um I think that Venezuela will, in order to escape this disaster, is going to need massive international financial assistance and debt restructuring. It will need both. The debt restructuring, as you say, has sort of like three chapters. Uh, two of those chapters are bonds, uh, and there's PDVSA bonds and, and government bonds. Uh, the PDVSA bonds are issued by a corporation, and a corporation in principle, can go bankrupt or need bankruptcy protection. So there's a proceeding in the in the codes, in the law, that's called Chapter 15 of the Bankruptcy Code, that says that a foreign corporation that in their home country is under restructuring can seek the, the support of the, um, the courts in the U.S. And if, if the court in the U.S. accepts that to, to abide by the, that proceeding, it would impose a standstill on all creditors. And that will force creditors to negotiate uh, a restructuring. And that restructuring will be imposed on on the holdouts that don't want to participate in the process because that's the way bankruptcy processes work. They, you get a majority, a two-thirds majority typically of the credits, of the, of the creditors uh, on board. And then uh, the court imposes the resolution on on the remaining creditors. So that would be a solution for, for PDVSA. A solution for the Republic is that uh, many of these uh, bonds uh, have uh, collective action clauses. Most of them have collective action clauses, which means that a majority of the bondholders can amend the terms of, of the bond, including the principal and the interest and so on. And, and if you do an exchange, there is something that they call exit consent, so that when as as people exchange their bonds, they consent to changing the terms of the old bonds. And there are ways of changing the terms of the old bonds that make them less attractive to the holdouts, so they wouldn't want to hold out and, and remain with their old old bonds because they're going to become less less valuable. So I think that those techniques that have been developed and that uh, some people like me too and and uh, Mark Walker and uh, Richard Cooper and others are, are discussing and thinking about 
can be potential ways to restructure the market debt. Then there's obviously the debt with China and, and Russia. I think that the Chinese debt is probably in the order of $26, $28 billion. Uh, well, you know, essentially, I think that, that the, the Chinese debt is a horrible debt. It was, it, it was um, a, a, a contracted in secret terms for secret uses. We don't know what the money was used for. There's no accounting of, of it. Uh, entities that received the money have not presented any statements of, of, of anything. We don't know where the money went. We know some projects that were supposed to be funded with that money. None of these projects have been completed. Most of them have not even advanced significantly. And all the monies have been dispersed, but they're no longer there. Uh, so, so this uh, the mechanism of the Chinese debt is is very pernicious. Uh, it was borrowed by some entity, but supposed to be paid back by the oil company, which had not borrowed the money and consequently had no money to pay it back with. Uh, this is very unconventional. Uh, so I think that the Chinese debt will have to be restructured very significantly. And I don't think that China is going to want to compromise the future relationship with Venezuela on the basis of something that they should perceive as being a dark page in their financial history. And we're going to have to leave it there. So much more uh, I would have wanted to talk to you about, Ricardo. So maybe we'll have you on again uh, sometime, hopefully soon. But thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And that is the end of my chat with Ricardo Hausman. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one for our listeners overseas because we are based in the U.S. Email us at alphachat at ft.com and go to ft.com forward slash alphachat for show notes to this episode and all other prior episodes. And that is particularly important in this episode because we referred to so many links. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or a review. We really do appreciate that. It helps other people find out about the podcast. I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia, and Ricardo is on Twitter at Ricardo underscore Houseman. And in his Twitter handle, unlike in his real name, he has only one N at the end of Houseman. So that's H-A-U-S-M-A-N in the Twitter handle. And finally, this week's episode, frankly, had too sad a theme to distort it into praise for Amy Keene, our producer and editor, but she is awesome, and I promise that I will return soon to embarrassing her in my closings at the end of each episode. Thanks again for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.